0: can't sing that song without a little bit of personal reflection huh i mean you sing a song to the lord and worship is to the lord it's not to each other aren't you glad worships to the lord and you start saying to the lord i surrender all you better be careful what you sing because first of all it may change your life when you do number two if you're not you're lying to god you know so you better be pretty careful well i'm glad you're here this morning i want you to take your bible and I'd like for you to turn with me to the book, a wonderful book of Hebrews, a wonderful chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. If you're like me and grew up in church, you've heard preachers call it the roll call of the faith. Some of you probably heard preachers call it the, the faith hall of fame. It's a wonderful, wonderful chapter. In Hebrews 11:6, the Bible says this, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe, that's the word for faith, must believe, that's the word for trust or trustworthy. He who comes to God must believe that he is, that he is God, that he's sovereign, that he is in control of everything, that he's worthy of our allegiance, he's worthy of our affections. He's worthy of our obedience. He's worthy of our reverence. And so, beloved, I want you to know that I believe the church today, perhaps as never before, needs instruction on what biblical faith is all about, what biblical faith really does. And we need to look at illustrations of those who lived by faith, biblical illustrations of those who lived by faith. And that's kind of my goal over the next several weeks. Uh, I want to probably, some of you will go out and say, well, he rambled a little bit today, and that's probably right. I want to do a little bit of an introduction to you, okay? And, but I believe I need to do that to set the stage of what we'll be doing over the next four or five weeks. The he, writer of Hebrews had a very difficult task in front of him. The readers had come to faith had begun to walk in faith, and they realized something that every believer understands or comes to understand at some point, that walking in faith is not a tiptoeing through the tulips. Walking in faith is a difficult task, and, and the writer of Hebrews addressing that is proven to be difficult in that context there as well as it is today. It's difficult to walk by faith. Now what's interesting, it's only 35 years after our Lord had been crucified. These were just second-generation believers, but they were already disillusioned. They were already discouraged. Persecution had come in a big way. But more than that, the intensity of the Christian life had begun to dull somewhat. Like many in today's Christian world, the desire for church the desire for assembling together, the desire for preaching of the Word of God had dimmed somewhat. Living the faith was not as appealing as it was at the beginning. Perhaps they had heard something like, we here today, all oh, just come to Jesus, trust Jesus, give your life to Jesus, and you'll never have any financial trouble anymore. You'll never have any health trouble anymore. That everything's just going to be great. All you got to do is put a big smile on, and and when the challenges come, you just smile it away or laugh it away. Maybe they had heard that and they realized that wasn't true because it wasn't true in their life. And so, like many, perhaps in today's environment, they were beginning to realize that being forgiven doesn't mean perfection in life circumstances. It means perfection with regard as God looks at you, but it's not perfection. You still, for us, you still got to get up and go to work on Monday, don't you? And once a month, the house payment still comes due, doesn't it? And there's those Fridays that you have to live through. Well, they had that kind of stuff going on, and they were struggling. And they literally were beginning to wonder, is it really worth it? Is following after Jesus really worth it? And some of them were thinking maybe it would be better to go back. Now, true believers can't, but they didn't know that. When you're under pressure, your imagination runs away with you. And so they were thinking, well, maybe I ought to go back to Judaism. At least when we were in Judaism, it wasn't outlawed like Christianity is now. Nero wouldn't kill us like he was killing Christians then. So it was a very daunting task for the writer. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. There's a lot of conjecture. Some say Luke. Some say Paul. I just say God did, okay? but it was a daunting task for the human writer. And beloved, it's a daunting task today as well. Sometimes it's hard to face reality. And when you do face reality, sometimes it shakes you up a little bit. We really don't like reality sometimes, but we need reality. It scares us but we need to know what's real. You need to know what's real. We have to be able to understand the times in which we're living. And we want to say and we want to say we're a Christian nation, don't we? But we sense that there's something not just quite right. There's a tension within us. We sense the foundation shaking somewhat, but we're not just sure why. It's kind of like termites eating away at the foundation. We we know it's happening. We can see the effect. We can't see the termites, but we know the structure is not quite as strong as it used to be. We see the church sliding, don't we? We see wickedness rising, don't we? We see the followers of Jesus Christ increasingly becoming silent And we see the God haters increasingly becoming more vocal and so we begin to ask ourselves what in the world is going on here last week I kind of spilt some of my beans for today and uh, so some of the things I'll be sharing will be a little redundant I said well I told Don I so I can't just regurgitate everything so I went back and dug a little more you know, and, and, and I came across, I was thinking this week as I was studying, meditating on what today would bring, I was thinking a little bit about that word perverse. You, you remember, you hear preachers say, we live in a perverse generation. And so I decided to do a little bit of a word search. Uh, the good thing about Google and all these Bible programs is, man, you can at a fingertip, you can get a lot of stuff. And so I typed in the word of my Bible search, the word perverse. I came to find out that it's used twice in the New Testament. But they're different words. Twice the Bible says that you live in or we live in a perverse generation. In Acts 2.20, it's the word crooked. We get the word scoliosis from that. It means to be warped. The Bible tells us that we lived in a, we live in a crooked or a warped generation. Philippians 2.15, if the word means to be corrupt or twisted. And so the writers of the New Testament living in that day are, were saying, we can lift it and apply it to our day that we live in a crooked and a corrupt society, a, a generation. Those are the days in which the, the readers in the book of Hebrews were living, such as the day that you and I are living in as well. Now let me share some thoughts that I had shared last week with you, Okay. We've heard that we're about a 70% Christian population. We want to believe that. We know that's not right, but then we hear like 40%. That makes us feel good, okay? I shared with you last week that recent data suggests that we're about a 7% Christian nation. Now, people, that means that we're not nearly as big, we're not nearly as influential, and we're not nearly as powerful as we think we are. And like I said, we don't want to hear that stuff, but the fact is we better hear it and we better understand it and we better see how that shakes out for us individually and us as a church. I I was thinking a moment ago as we were listening to those wonderful testimonies, they were great testimonies, guys, and they were great short, I love it. And uh, as they were sharing, I, I was thinking, you know, the Christian nation today desperately needs to be in church. They need to be in church because it's good for them. They need to be in church because it's good for their family. They need to be in church because it's good for the church. They need to be in church because it's good for the nation. They need to be in church because when God's people assemble together, it gives God an opportunity to smile on his people and smile on the nation. You see, that's why church is important. It's just not about you at all, is it? It's about a much larger thing. If I come to church, it's going to be better for you because I'm here. It's going to be better for me because you're here, and it's going to be better for all of us. Because we are here, and we don't want to hear about this kind of uh, reality, but we need to live in reality or we can't deal with real life issues. Out of the 316 million people in the United States, only about 22, perhaps 28 million are actual Christians. And again, we're not winning the war. We're not even keeping the, the figures up. I think I shared with you that if the trend continues 30 years from now, the church is going to lose 70% of its contributions, and we'll be about 2% of the population. In fact, the Christian community is about the size of New York. If you were to kick everybody out of New York and take all the Christians in the United States and shift them to New York, okay, there would be not one single Christian anywhere else in the United States. And that number of 22 million to 28 million, is barely the size of the Muslim community in a part of Cairo, Egypt. Does that kind of give you a perspective of where we're at today? Now, the anti-God people, they know that, but we don't. Because we don't like to say, preachers don't like to say this. Teachers don't like to say this. And so we tend not to say this. But the anti-God people, they know it. One reason there's such a rapid rise, a speed of which I've never seen in my life of anti-Godism in America, is because they know that we do not have the influence and the power we once had. Folks, the, the hold back, you may call it grace hold, I don't know what you want to call it, but the hold back is gone. We'd rather hunt, or we'd rather fish, we'd rather go to the lake, we'd rather play ball, we'd rather shoot golf, when God's people should be worshiping together. Is anything wrong with hunting? No. But if it becomes a, if it becomes a manner of my life or a mode of my life, then something's tragically wrong, because it means I don't care about anybody else or my nation, or my church, I care about myself. And that's just so wrong. Where we should be emboldening, emboldened in the faith, the anti-God people are emboldened because of our weaknesses and because of our unwillingness to stand. They see us doing what they're doing. Our standards are no different than their standards. And what they realize is that there's so many that are so-called Christians that are just Christians in name only. They're not really Christians at all. And within the next two generations, it's going to get increasingly worse. Next service, I'll stress this, but there are some younger folks here. If I were you, if I were you, I would. and our generation knows that, don't we? If I were you, I'd be at church every time the doors are open. If you want to go to the lake, go on Saturday. Come back late Saturday. That's what we did. We had a camper when my kids were little at the lake, and we would leave Friday after work, and we'd spend all night Friday, and we'd spend all day Saturday. But I'll tell you, I guarantee you, we came home Saturday night. You know why we came home on Saturday night? Because we believe church was important on Sunday morning. We believe what our Sunday school teachers were trying to teach us, having a job and trying to make it work, was important to us. We believe that when the pastor stood in the pulpit and said, open up your Bible, it was important for us to hear, not just for us, but for our family and for our church and fellow faith family and for our nation, see. And the ungodlies know that we don't do that. Because, you see, we say we're going to heaven, so let's go to the lake and catch some bass. We're going to heaven anyway. What's the big deal? I want to tell you it is a big deal, people, okay? Today, Christians are viewed as the KKK was several years ago at best were labeled intolerant now you're hearing things like following jesus christ those who follow jesus christ have a mental and personality disorder there may come a day where what we believe will be illegal will be called mentally ill that's happening but it may be even illegal it may be illegal to help people find true sexuality huh Gang, we're we're murdering around 50 million innocent, but we've murdered 50 million innocent babies so far. Brother Al's a World War II man. Our abortions, total abortions, are now approaching the total number of people killed during World War II. Beloved, you listen to me. Now we've become the enemy. And we don't want to hear it, Okay. So we take our hands and place them over our ears because we just want to keep living. Just leave me alone. I just want to keep living my life, but we can't. And the only way we can combat it is to understand the biblical basis of faith, what it is, and why it matters. Sometimes you hear about certain churches or some churches growing big numbers. Well, let me just tell you, and Don's done a study on this, those who have exploded in numbers, they're not reaching new people. They're just getting members from other churches. They're getting members from smaller churches because the smaller churches are dying. And so they're shifting from smaller churches that are dying to the larger churches. And so many of them preach a cheap gospel, a very easy man-centered decision that has no backbone. That has no cross connected to it. The pastors never talk anything about sin and repentance. And beloved, you can get a congregation with that, but you're not going to get converts with that, okay? You're not going to get disciples from that. And at the end of it all, if you don't have true regenerated converts, And if you don't have those that are being discipled in the faith, at the end you really don't have anything anyway, see? You just have a bunch of people that have no perseverance, which is one of the hallmarks of Christianity, so when the faith testing comes, as it always does and will in greater degree, they'll just fall away. That's why at some point in the next probably 30 years, that 7% number Is going to drop down to 2%, okay? Now, I know what I've said so far is negative. I realize that it kind of makes you uncomfortable, and you're thinking, well, preacher, all you do, that's negative. Why would you get up here and take 30 minutes of my time and talk about negative things? Well, let me try to balance it just a little bit, okay? Does that mean the church is lost, that we're going to be beaten? No, it doesn't. Didn't Jesus say God's church will always prevail? Didn't he say that? Didn't he say that the church, which is the assembly of the faithful, the faith family of God, will prevail? Now, I do believe the numbers will be smaller, and I think the money will be less. But the beauty is it will be made up of the true believers. It will be the true church. I think now our numbers are inflated. We have Christian ghosts floating around. We don't know where they are. We don't even know what's happened to them, you know. They're Christian in name only, but you don't go to heaven in name only. That doesn't mean you have eternal life. However, bless the Lord, okay? There's going to come a day when the church will be made up of believers willing to die for the cross. Stu had us sing that song, I Surrender All. And I believe there's going to come a day when that song's going to mean a lot more than it does today in our convenient society. And praise the Lord for that. It'll be people who are willing to die for their faith. People that are willing to be uncompromising in their belief structure and their world values for God. History teaches us that the church thrives when it's that way. You read the book of Acts. Read church history. That's why the true church in places like India and China and all these other places are just in the ha- seedbed, the hotbeds of persecution. That's why they're exploding. That's why they're, 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 they're growing. That's why God's doing some things. And some of these places that we wouldn't dare want our kids to go, we want them to stay here when it's thriving there and we're just floating along in our mediocrity thinking that God loves us and God's mind. The Jews thought that, and they went into captivity, didn't. But remember this. Even though we may be living in a godless nation, if you know Christ, if you're truly born again, and I wouldn't assume, I'll just take a moment, I don't assume everybody in here is. I think some of you are probably just playing the game. Next service, same thing. I don't think everybody in there is saved. I think you're just playing a game. I think you're you're pretending to be what you're really not. Down deep in your heart, you've got to know you're not, because the Spirit of God's not there to convict you. You're lost. You haven't never been regenerated. Therefore, you don't have the gift of faith or repentance to, to see God change your life, you see. But those who are, beloved, we're of holy birth. We're born of the supernatural. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. So Hebrews chapter 11 seeks to describe for us, and that's what we're going to begin a journey on, seeks to describe for us true faith, not so much to define it, but to describe it. We're going to begin with a framework of what true faith is, and like I said, we're going to see how it's going to be illustrated in the life of godly people, people of old who lived it out in their lifestyle, lifetime, like Noah and Moses and in Abraham, perhaps when the reader, the, the, excuse me, the, the writer of Hebrews got through, the readers of Hebrews were emboldened in their faith. My prayer is that when we're through with this study, that we're going to be emboldened in our faith as well. Now let's, I told you to open up your Bible. I want to begin by reading the last few verses of chapter 10. I'm going to look at, we'll read chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. I'll make one comment at the end of verse 3, okay? But let's begin Hebrews 10, and let's begin verse 35. This kind of give you a sense of what he, the writer, is trying to get across. Therefore, verse 35, Hebrews 10, Therefore, that's a summary of what he has said, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Did you get that? For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. It means if he shrinks back, he never had to start with. Now look at verse 39. Verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruct. The real faith family can't shrink back. We may not always be perfect. We may have our issues. But I want to tell you, those that are are born of faith, those who are justified by faith alone, according to the grace of God alone, in accordance to the Scripture alone, by Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, they'll never shrink back. And verse 39, 39 says that. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to persevering of the soul. And so he's helping them understand if you're not real, you may fall back, but you got something worse. If you are of faith, you got something great when he comes, and you'll get what he has for you. Now, 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 let's read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11, okay? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, men of old gained approval. Verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. Why? Well, so that... What is seen was not made out of things which are visible. I've always been challenged by verse 1, and that's going to be my attempt next week to deal with that, okay? Now, listen, let me close this thing up a little bit. If we're going to have a meaningful discussion of faith, then I think we have to recognize something that the writer said at the end of verse 3, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible, okay? Okay? When you read that last phrase, you have to realize something, dear people, that there is a difference between what is unseen and what is unknown. Something can be very real, but it may be unseen to us. The human or physical eyes cannot see everything, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. That's why we must have the eyes of faith. In fact, there's a a verse that I read in my quiet time in the Old Testament that that talked about um, opening our ears so that we may see. That's an interesting way of, of writing. Biblical faith teaches us that while we may not see everything, we can believe because of whom God is and what God has said in His book, His revelation, His scripture, the inerrant word of God to us, you see. Now, it may be in the form of a promise yet to come. That's the way it was for Abraham. He didn't get the promise. His family got the promise. It may be in the form of a promise. It may be in a plan or a, a, something to come a little bit later, You know, a purpose to come a little bit later. Our faith must believe it because God says it. And the Word of God confirms it. And because God is who God is, Hebrews eleven six. 6, Because God is who God is, then it will come to pass, okay? Let me give you my outline for verse 1 next week, okay? And then we'll, I'll try to expound on it a little bit, okay? Verse 1 tells me two things. And like I say, with my pea brain, it's always been hard for me to get my head around verse 1. It's just kind of a um, confusing thing to me. I think maybe I got it. We'll see next week. Maybe I don't, you know. Number one, we're going to see that looking that biblical faith is looking forward in confidence in the invisible. Biblical faith is looking forward in confidence in the invisible. And then secondly, biblical faith is looking up in certainty in the invisible. Okay? And I want you to be here for this if you can. I know it's hard for some of you, but not everyone can. I understand that. But I want to encourage you. Over these next few weeks, in fact, I'm not even pulling off for Mother's Day. Next week's Mother's Day, I'm going to do Hebrews 11-1, because I believe that's what God wants us to do. Uh, the next week is our graduating senior Sunday. Mark will be sharing. That'll be his last sermon, by the way, for us here. But then we're going to get right back on this and finish this up. Okay. I hope you'll join us in the journey. Now, I want to close with a verse that I'm going to. I just tell you from taking totally out of context. Okay. If you're a, uh, a seminary professor. Uh, you would fail me on what I'm about to do, okay? In fact, you'd be waiting for me at the back of the chair. you said, boy, you blew that, okay? But the verse conveys what I want to say to you, so forget that it's, in fact, I won't even tell you where it's at in the Bible because it's totally out of context. But I, 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 here's what I want you to know, okay? When we're through, I don't want you to be uninformed. Secondly, I don't want you to be grieved as those who have no hope. My whole goal in this series is to inform you, but secondly is to give you hope and help you understand why we don't like these statistics and why we can't quite understand about these termites eating away the foundation. I want you to have hope because, beloved, we belong to Christ. And on the cross we won. And the people of God will triumph. We already have in the midst of a scoliosis world. So when we're through with this study, I believe your faith will be stronger. I believe your spirit will be encouraged because truth always does that for God's people. I've said to you before, and I, I, I want to say again because I believe it with all of my heart, I'd rather live today than any other time in world history. I'm so excited about what our Lord is going to do for those who persevere in the faith while He preserves those in the faith. That's an exciting thing, when God preserves the beloved and the beloved persevere. I'm soon, I'm, I'm not soon, I'm approaching 64, okay? I wish, in some respects, people, I wish I was 34. I'd like to be 34 with the kids gone again, okay? I, uh, I, in so many ways, I wish I was 34, knowing what I know now. You know why? Because I'd like to be alive 30 years from now when we see the church refined, when we see the church shining as lights into a dark world. It's exciting times to be born of God. I hope this morning you can say that I have been born of God, that I have been born again according to the Spirit of God that worketh in the hearts of sinners. I don't imagine for one moment everybody in this room is, okay? You may think you are, but the Spirit, if you'll listen, lets you know whether you really are or whether you are not, because that's what God does. If there's not a persevering in your faith, if there's not a consistency or persistency in your faith, if the things of God doesn't excite you, if you're not on fire for the things of God, if you don't have a hunger for God's righteousness and a desire to come to his church and, and worship and praise him and learn about him and study about him, Beloved, you're not a faith. You're lost. Okay, You can say what you want to say, pretend any way you want to pretend. I want to tell you, based upon the authority of the Word of God, the Word of God teaches us that the believers of God persevere in their faith. We don't flake out when it gets hard. We don't bend away when the tides go out. We don't shrink back from declaring what we have based our eternity on. I am convinced that a grand number of those who claim to be part of the church are not part of the bride. They're part of a congregation, but they're not part of the converts. And maybe today that's where you're at. Maybe you've just kind of played the game a little bit, and you realize, or maybe you're beginning to realize, eternity's approaching. It's right around the corner. All the writers of the New Testament wrote as if it was about to happen, that God was right on the doorstep. And I believe that he is, and I think you need to You need to come to terms with where you are in the faith. And I'll tell you something else. Most of your family's not saved, by the way, okay? Yeah, when they were three or four or five, six, seven, they walked in. Now, a guy, dunked them. And I want to tell you, don't you for one minute believe that your family or your friends are not followers of Jesus Christ because there's nothing in their life that would mark it. So, therefore, you ought to be burdened about them because I want to tell you it's easy to say you're a Christian when you got water and electricity and when you got gas in your tank and you turn the key and it comes on say it means something else when you're not sure if there's any water at all I don't know if I, I told you to read that book insanity of God I don't know whether you've gotten it or not but you need to read the book the insanity of God absolutely radically change your view of Christianity from a non Western world perspective, it'll give you a perspective of the world in the real world. Okay? Well, Barbara's going to come. I want us to pray for just a moment. Uh, I know uh, today was a little different, probably more of a uh, non exposition, but we were biblical. We may not have been fully. Textual. Next week we'll get back on the text. Father, I pray for these dear people.